So it's, it's absolutely wonderful to be here. I'm here with my buddy, uh, my wingman, uh, Gareth Miles. Uh, we're in Stellenbosch, so his Afrikaans name is Gert Millis. Um, and so it's great to have Gert with me here. We actually scouted out the land last night. We were here for Ravi uh, and Ramsden, uh, and it was absolutely wonderful. You guys live in an amazing part of the world. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but culture flows downstream from Stellenbosch. It flows downstream from Stellenbosch, and it, it's one of the most uh, influential hubs within the country. And the fact that you guys can host guys like Gravy and Ramsden and have a, um, the kind of week that you guys had, a festival of thought, is that what it was called? Um, is just phenomenal, and the kind of people that you attract is phenomenal, which is amazing. And so it's a, it's a joy and a privilege to be here. We actually did the old Swaparoo. I'm here. And Ollie's in Somerset West today, and we've uh, swapped it up. And so we're grateful that you're lending Ollie to us for today, and I'm really grateful to be back in town with you guys. I love Stellenbosch, I love this church, I love Paul and Kate, the leaders, and I love what God's doing in the world and all over the place. And, um, and so as you sit here this morning, I want you to just, you're not here because you come to listen to me speak, you're not here because uh, you've got nothing better to do. You could be sitting in your Easy Boy watching TBN eating sticky chicken wings from last night, but you're here because you've got an expectancy. You've got, you're expecting something, surely. And so towards that end, I want to encourage us just to, just to open up our hearts a little bit more, trust that God's going to meet with us this morning. Father, as we gather here this morning, Lord, for each and every one of us, Lord, you know us, you know our story, you know our journey, and I pray, Lord God, that you'd come and meet with each and every one of us, Lord, that this wouldn't just be um, church in the motion, Lord, that this wouldn't just be another Sunday morning, Lord, but that you would come and engage with us through your word this morning, that your spirit would come and bring to life and highlight your truths that you want to apply to us today. Lord, we ask that, that as we sit here, Lord, you would come and call us to obedience, to your word, to your son, Jesus Christ, and in his name we pray. Amen. Wonderful. So I'm super excited. We're busy with a series called Crossroads. But as I begin, I want to tell you about uh, Peter Watlin. In 1993, Peter Watlin lost his hammer in a field. He had a problem. He lost his hammer in a field. In 1989, Clint Leclerc had a problem. He missed his flight because he was playing Mortal Kombat in the airport arcade. Uh, and uh, in the 70s, Neville Wallace had a problem. He lost his leg in a car accident, spent his 18th birthday uh, in hospital. And so um, over the last couple of weeks, you've been journeying through the book of John. I think uh, two weeks ago, you uh, had the story of the woman at the well. Last week, you had Nicodemus. And today, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, John chapter 4 uh, and uh, Jesus and the official son, his encounter with the official son. And this official um, had a problem. And so we're going to pick it up in John chapter 4, verse 43. It's transitioning from the woman at the well. And you can read with me on the screen. It says there, after the two days he left for Galilee, for Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. And once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. 
Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go. Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed, and while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time, when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so he and his whole household believed. And so they say nothing in life is as certain. Nothing in life is certain except for death and taxes, right? And I want to add to that that nothing in life is certain except for death, taxes, and problems. Okay? Problems are common to all mankind. In fact, Jesus says as much in John 16. He says, in this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have problems, hardship, difficulties, challenges. And so I don't think there's any one person here who is devoid of problems. And so... It seems to me that, that children, for the most part, are oblivious to problems. And so as a child growing up, my biggest worry was what was for dinner and whether it involved broccoli or not. As a teenager, it was getting my zits under control. And as a student, it was ensuring that I had enough petrol in my car to get to Bikini Beach on Friday. And so, and so it seems like, as a kid, you, you almost... You're almost ignorant. It's almost like a gift from God around the, the problems and the concerns of life. But the older you get, the bigger the problems seem to become. In fact, it seems like there's an influx. And, and sometimes I think to myself, where was I for the first 20 years of my life? Was I living underneath a rock? And so regardless, what we need to understand and what we need to get our heads around is that problems are common to all mankind. They're common to all of us. And problems are always they're always, in some kind of way, practically, they're practical in nature in that they practically affect us. There's this tangible outworking. And they're often rooted in ourselves or in the lives of someone that we're close to. And the question I want to ask at this point is, what problem are you currently dealing with in your life? It's not a matter of are you, it's a matter of what. What problem are you dealing with at this moment in this point of time in your life. And, and so it could be health problems. It could be, it could be cancer, heart disease, impaired hearing, uh, deteriorating eyesight, di- diabetes. It could be anything. My brother at this moment is suffering from tongue cancer. I'm watching his body being, being wrecked as he tries to get this thing under control. What problems, what health problems are you facing? Is it in your life, in someone else's life? What about relational problems? Is there divorce? Dissatisfied relationships, dissatisfied marriages, rebellious children, issues between family members, sense of distrust between you and a friend. Can you relate to this? What about financial problems? Is there too much month at the end of your money? Is there a problem of debt ongoingly? Are the kids going to bed hungry? Are the kids going without compared to other children? Is there financial problems? What about spiritual problems? Are you far from God? Are you in a desert? Are you not hearing from God? Are you living in sin? Sin? Are you questioning whether God exists or not? Or are you battling to embrace in obedience some of the harder truths that God's word is asking you to do? Or is it existential problems? Questioning your purpose, your identity, your, your calling? Are you battling with the meaning of life? Are you dissatisfied deeply with relationships or with work or I don't know? And so 
And so the question or the point is this, is that we all have problems. And so, and so what is the problem that you're facing in your life? And so in this story, we have this official, a royal official, and, um, and he's, he has a problem. And so when we come in, we work it out just very quickly. He's a royal official, which means he's part of Herod's court, Herod, the king of the time. And so we don't know what he does there, but, but Herod is the same Herod that goes and marries his brother's wife. I mean, this guy's nasty. He's a real piece of work. He has John the Baptist beheaded on the whim at a big party to impress a lady. And so he's a real piece of work. And so this official, this royal official, is, is a Gentile who's part of this inner circle, this wicked inner circle of Herod. And he has a problem. He has a pretty severe problem. In verse 46, 47, we see that this royal official has a son who lay sick. We see at the end there, it says, who was close to the point of death. And so this royal official has a problem. It's, it's rooted in a health problem, but I'm sure there's a, a drop-down effect, a cascading effect into the relational dynamic between him and his family and the fallout from that. And so he has a problem. Now the problem with the problem is number one, that by definition it's a problem. Eh? I worked hard on that one. <laughs> Secondly, the problem with the problem is that we very often need help with our problems. And so the question that I want to ask is, who do we go to for help with our problems? Who do we go to for help solving our problems? Do we go eat Chinese food for a week, hoping for some business advice from one of the fortune cookies? Are we watching reruns of Oprah and Ellen to get relational advice of how to deal with my boyfriend? Or... Or do you have a poster of Dr. Phil in your cupboard? You know, the all-knowing one. Dr. Phil, we go to you. Or for the you readers amongst us, do you go to Dr. Louise? I like this one. He took away my engagement ring. What should I do? Or do we go to Sister Dolly in Drum Magazine? I can't move on. What should I do? Or this is my favorite. Or do we go to Facebook? This is a good. My child drank bleach. What should I do? Take her to the hospital now. Bleach is a problem. She may die. He may, he may even have bad health, whatever. And then the next little thing there is keep chatting on Facebook until he feels better. <laughs> and then the next one is even better. Click 40 likes and he'll be okay. <laughs> or do we go to Instagram or Pinterest? I love this one, eh? Sometimes good things fall apart so better things can fall together. Marilyn Monroe. And so my marriage is falling apart. I'm really battling, but actually it must be falling apart because there's a better relationship around the corner. And so because Marilyn Monroe said so, I I think it must be I'm going to take relational advice from Marilyn Monroe and I'm going to leave my marriage there and I'm going to come and I'm going to, you know, something better is just around the corner. Or do we go to good, well-meaning friends. And I have been amazed by this in the last while. Even just recently, Kaz and I had a conversation with someone and, and we see it again and again and again how, how people who are in tight spots, difficult situations and, and being called to compromise in an area of their life, as an example, relationally, and it's most often relationally, where two people are pursuing a relationship and one is a believer and the other isn't. And the Bible talks about being aware of being unequally yoked, 
or, or a, a couple that are, are in a physical relationship but aren't, aren't yet married. These are some of the most prime examples when it comes to this, where, where people are, are compromising in one way or another, and they go to, to friends, well-meaning good, good friends for advice, and their friends lack the courage in that moment to say anything, and so they skirt around it, and their lack of courage is an indirect endorsement of that. And so we had an encounter recently where Kaz spoke to a lady and said, you know what, I, I, can't, I can't love God and love you and sit here and be quiet. And so I need to tell you that, that you're compromising and you're going to be dissatisfied in that. And she sat there and she said, you know, you're the first one that has said this to me. And she said, how many people have you spoken to? And she listed on two hands the number of people, all of which were in the local church. What's going on? And so earlier I asked, what problem are you currently dealing with in your life? And now I want to ask, who do you go to with your problems? Who do you go to with your problems? And so this official, this Gentile, who's part of this evil inner circle of Herod, knows to go to Jesus. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. And so this official isn't the only one that knew to go to Jesus for help. The Gospels are littered with stories of people going to Jesus to find help. And so we see it again and again. Jesus helps the Gentile Phoenician woman whose daughter is demon-possessed. Jesus helps the centurion whose son is sick and dying. Jesus helps the Jewish woman with the issue of blood. Jesus helps cleanse the leper in Matthew chapter 8. Jesus helps cleanse the 10 lepers in Luke chapter 17. Jesus comes and feeds the 5,000 with the five loaves and the two fishes. Jesus calms the storm. When his disciples are petrified, they're going to drown. And so Jesus comes and he helps in these situations. And there are the countless examples of people. There are many, many more who come to Jesus for help. And so the gospel, folks, the gospel isn't simply a ticket into heaven. The gospel isn't the bare minimum that you need to believe to escape hell. The gospel isn't a post-dated check that you take, that you get on the moment that you believe, you put in your pocket, and one day, as you mumble and walk through this life, you find yourself at the pearly gates that you come in and cash in to get into heaven. No, the, the gospel is relevant and real for us today. It changes lives today, here and now. The gospel, folks, is real and now, and it changes our lives today. The, the gospel has within it What Jesus Christ did on the cross has within it the transformative power to change our lives today. And so this series is called Crossroads because, yes, it's a a play on the cross of Jesus Christ. But what we've got to realize is that the cross of Jesus Christ presents us with the crossroads in our lives that we've got to come to. And we've got to say, either Jesus is a liar and a fake and his promises are empty or he is who he says he is. And his words are true, and his empty tomb is the substance of why we can believe his word and his promises are real to us today. And so as I stand here, I stand here as someone who, who through the many years that I've journeyed, have, has gone back and I've looked and I've researched and I've worked through and I've read and I've come to the point through those processes, but also in my own life and the transformative journey that I've been through, where if, if you could have seen who I was and who I am now, you'd say, Geez, there must be a God. If I wasn't a believer, I'd be dead, I promise you. 
If Gareth wasn't a believer, he would be dead, I promise you. His story is far more radical than mine, and yours could be too. And there are people who are sitting here today who have got testimonies of the transformational power of the gospel, of how their lives have changed. And so the story of the woman of the well, at the well is she met Jesus, and she was one woman, and she left radically changed as if she was another woman. She, she was transformed, radically changed. And so what I'm trying to get across and what I'm asking for us to grasp and understand is that the gospel isn't for one day in the future. It isn't for when we get to heaven. It's for us here and now that it changes our lives today. And so in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That rest is for today, for here and now. It's not a one-day promise. And so if Jesus is who he says he is, that truth, the promises that he gives us, we need to believe it and embrace it. When, he, when he's asked, how should we pray? He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts. The, 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 that prayer is prayed into a current reality, not a future reality. And so my point is this, is that God wants to change our lives today. He wants to transform our lives today. I want us to be aware and to know and to understand and to to accept that God is aware of our problems today. And not just that he's aware of them, that he cares about them. For many, God is this disconnected, absent God. But the God of the Bible is one who cares. And not only that he cares, but he wants to resolve them. And not only that he wants to resolve them, but that he's able to resolve them. And he's able to resolve them through Christ Jesus. Do you believe that God can solve your problems today through Christ Jesus? Many of us battle to believe this. We're sitting here and saying, why are there so many problems in the world? Why are there so many problems in those people's lives that I care about? Why are there so many problems in my life? Why do these problems never get solved? And it's a challenge and a problem for us. And we're never going to get our heads around it because the challenge is this, is we're trying to understand and grasp what an elephant is by putting it under a microscope. You're never going to be able to do it. You've got to step away. And so in the same way, we've got to understand this in the nature of problems. You can't understand, you can't grasp what an elephant is by putting it underneath a microscope. And so in 1993, Peter Watlin is walking in the field, drops his hammer. He's working on his farm. He drops his hammer and he can't find it. So he goes and finds his buddy who's got a metal detector. And they come and they're looking for this hammer in the farm. And what he finds is the biggest single hoard of Roman gold and silver that has ever been found in British history. Worth millions and millions. And so he lost the hammer and he found a treasure. Hey, what a cool story. Clint Leclerc in 1989 Missed his flight because he was playing Mortal Kombat in the airport arcade. He goes and all the hassle of having to reissue a ticket, the time delay and the cost. He's all frustrated and whatever. He lands on the other side to find out that the plane that he would have been on crashed and he would have been dead. He missed his flight but he gained the rest of his life. Neville Wallace lost his leg in a car accident 
spent months in the hospital, spent his 18th birthday there, but he met a lady that became the love of his life. And so Neville Wallace lost a leg, but he met his wife. And so you can't fully grasp what an elephant is by putting it under a microscope. And you can't fully grasp the nature of a problem by putting it under a microscope. You've got to step back from it. You've got to step away from it. And you've got to look at it on the macro level. And so we're going to do that now very quickly with the official and his son and with the nature of problems. And so verse 43 says, after two days he left for, for, for Galilee. And so what we've got to understand is that Jesus has just spent two days in Samaria and he's now leaving for Galilee. And so it's the story of Jesus at the woman, with the woman at the well. And so, and so if you remember from two weeks ago, the Jews hated the Samaritans, yet Jesus finds his, his way there. Uh, and even though they despise the Samaritans, Jesus finds that he is spectacularly successful amongst the Samaritans. Ends up spending two days there, and it appears that the whole town of Sychar, this is where he ended up, was turning to Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And the focus was not his miracle-making power, it was on his word of truth. And we know this because if we go a few verses back, we read in verse 42, it says, and this is the Samaritan saying, we have heard him for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is a better response here, that he gets here, than anything he's gotten from amongst his own people. And so, and so maybe this is one of the first reasons why some of our problems persist is because we come to Jesus as the, as the miracle-making power instead of the person who is the word of truth. Anyway, he moves on from Samaria heading to his own region, to his own people. And admittedly, this passage of Scripture is really confusing. I mean, it took me a few goes to try and get my head around it. And so hopefully I'm going to help us understand exactly what's going on here. And so this little verse here, verse 44, is confusing because it's kind of just put in there. It's in brackets and what's going on here. It says, for Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so, <clears throat> and so what, we, what we need to see here is that, is that this, these brackets here are, are indicative of like a, a thought that's just been popped in randomly there. And the word for is he's giving us a reason. And so he was in Samaria. He was there for two days, but he needs to move on and he needs to go for, for a prophet has no honor amongst his own people. And so that in itself is confusing. So we know this thought is here. It's telling us he has to move on because he's got this agenda for a prophet has no uh, honor amongst his own people. And the agenda is this, is that he's just come from Jerusalem. And amongst Jerusalem, uh, amongst the people in Jerusalem, he's, he's been busy there. And this is in his first year of ministry. And he, he's working there and he becomes highly unpopular to the point that they want to have him killed. And so he says, okay, these guys are taking me a little bit too seriously. It's too early in my ministry now to, to allow this to happen. I need to go somewhere where they don't take me seriously. So a prophet has no honor amongst his own people. That's where I'm going. And so that's the context there. And so there's this little detour to Samaria. Now he's back on course. He's going to his own people. And so you guys with me? Okay. And so... And so a prophet has no honor amongst his own people, but then it gets even more confusing in the next verse because it says in verse 45, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And so there's a contradiction there. They welcomed him. And so what's going on here? Why on earth would they welcome him? This 
kind of welcome isn't actually the kind of welcome that is welcoming at all. This is the kind of welcome that is cynical and skeptical. Yes, come, come. It's, it's rubbing your hands together. Come, come. Come stand here. Let's see what's going to happen. This is going to be interesting. It's like Mr. Burns, you know. <laughs> Let's see what's going to happen here. And, and, so, and so John 1.11 says, He came to his own people, but they did not accept him. He came to his own people and they did not accept him. They welcomed him, but it wasn't an, uh, this accepting welcoming. And so, and so there are those that know Jesus but don't welcome him. There are those that know Jesus but don't accept him. There are those that know Jesus but don't believe in him. And these Jews that were welcoming him were actually, they knew him, but they weren't actually welcoming him. And, and this is perhaps part of the reason why some of our other problems persist. Why, why our problems persist is, is that we, we know Jesus, but we don't actually welcome him or accept him or believe him. And so anyway, these Jews are, are welcoming him, but they're not actually welcoming him, if you know what I mean. And so verse 46 says, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. And so again here, this is a little confusing, at least it was for me. And so unless you see signs and wonders, he told him, you will never believe. And so surely by virtue of the fact that this guy has come and traveled, it's indicative that he believes. And so what's going on here? There's two things. Number one, this is a Gentile savage from the inner court of one of the most wicked kings around. And so, and so by all accounts, Jesus had come to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. And so he was, he was in a sense putting a hurdle before this official. He was testing him. He wanted to see how he responded. And so it was a test to him. But actually, what's also happening is he's talking to him, but he's talking to them. He's talking to him, but he's talking to them because he knows they're standing there rubbing their hands together. And they're saying, okay, let's see what's going to happen here. And so you may know Jesus, but it doesn't actually mean, it doesn't actually mean that you're welcoming. You may know Jesus, but it doesn't actually mean you accept him. You may know Jesus, but it doesn't actually mean you believe him. And so, and so one of the stunning examples of this is with his own brothers, his own flesh and blood. In John 7, 3 verse 5, this is a conversation happening from his brothers to him. And you need to see the sarcasm in it. It says, so his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. For not even his brothers believed in him. And so there's this challenge of belief that you may, you may know someone, but you, you, you don't accept them, you don't welcome them. And this is the challenge and the problem here with Jesus is they knew him, but they didn't welcome him, they didn't accept him, and they didn't believe him. Actually, something stunning and amazing happens here with this official son and here with, um, with the woman at the well. And we've got to learn from it because Jesus came to his own people, but his own people don't accept him. But what we see is that he goes to the woman at the well, the Samaritan, who was not even of his own. And what happens there is she didn't even know she had these deep desires and these deep longings inside of her that Jesus comes and meets. And at the end of it, 
she not only believes in Jesus, but the whole town comes and believes too. And the same is true of the official son. If we go and read, we see it says the royal official said, Sir, come down. And so Jesus tests him. says, unless you see signs and wonders, unless you see miracles, you won't believe. And the official, he just goes back. He's like a bulldozer. He says, says, Sir, come down before my child dies. And it's enough for Jesus. He replies, Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And so he and his whole household believed. He and his whole household believed. And so he went there with this problem of his son not being right, of him being sick and at the point of death. And he got home believing that Jesus was the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And he went there with one problem and had another problem resolved. And it ended up in this firm belief that caused his whole household to come to faith and to believe. And so, and so what we've got to understand is that Jesus didn't come to heal the sick as much as he came to save the sick. And what we've got to understand is that you can't come and put an elephant under a microscope and hope to understand what it is. And you can't put a problem under the microscope and hope to understand what it is. You've got to step away from it and you've got to view it in its full context. And when we do that, we come to a point where we see that every little problem that we have is rooted in a bigger problem. That it flows out of a bigger problem. And that bigger problem is the problem between man and God. And so the gospel story is this, is that, is that God comes and creates Adam and Eve. He creates mankind, puts them in the garden, which is, which is a, a picture of being in relationship with God. It says as much that they're in relationship with God. And God comes and he says, you can have all of this, all of these things, all of these trees, but this one tree, that's mine, that belongs to me. You can't come and have this tree and touch it. And so what we've got to understand is that for love, uh, to be expressed relationally and, and for it to be expressed to God, it needs to exist in a space of free will. Unless, unless there's free will, it's just by instinct. It's just by programming, and that's not love at all. And so God comes and puts a tree in the Garden of Eden, and it's the parameters for love to be expressed that they choose God. That's what the story is here. The, fr- the, f- the, the sin that entered the world is not in the, the flesh of the fruit, and we all know it's an avocado pear, right? That's what they ate. It's not that sin is in the, the fruit that they eat and it goes into their stomach and now they're sinful. No, no what, what, what God wanted was for them to choose God first and foremost. And what happened is when they went and ate of the tree, they took something that God said you mustn't take. In that moment, they choose to honor themselves. They choose to choose themselves and put themselves first and God second. And that's the parameter of, of that love that's broken, that they no longer love God first and foremost, but they love themselves first and foremost. And so what we need to understand about God is that God is preeminent. He's supreme. He's sovereign. What that means is that God can never be second. By definition, by the very definition of God being God, He can never be second. And so in that moment, Adam and Eve choose to be first and put God second. And so God says, okay, that's absolutely fine. You can be first, but you can't be first in my world, in my kingdom. And so he removes himself from Adam and Eve's world. He removes them from this creative realm that we know as heaven and earth. And he comes 
And he removes his sustaining power. God is the God of life. He removes his presence from their life and from this world. And in doing so, we begin to see the world starts to unravel. And so, and so it starts to unravel where, where there's sin from one man to another, where there's heartache and pain and sore. And, and the problems that we know and understand is rooted back into that rejection of God and putting ourselves first. But more than that, the sustainer of the universe is removed. The sustainer of the universe is removed from our planet, from our existence, to the point that we start to see tsunamis, earthquakes, and all those kinds of things happen. And God allows it. He allows it because it's symptomatic of a bigger problem. It's symptomatic of the bigger problem that there's a disconnect between man and God and that God is not first. And so this thing of putting ourselves first and God second is what the Bible calls sin. And in the book of Leviticus, God comes and he says that the life of a creature is in its blood and I've given it as atonement for sin. And that's why we see just all these sacrifices in the Old Testament because everyone is trying to find their way back to God because whether you admit it or not, whether it's conscious or subconscious, there is a desire and a longing to find God, to find your way back to God, however you phrase it. And everyone's trying to find their way back to God. And so the, the, the pouring out of blood in the Old Testament is to somehow find their way back to God. But when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him, remember the lamb preach? He says, he says, Jesus Christ, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, who comes and takes away our sin and makes it possible for us to connect with God first and foremost. And so I'm saying this, I'm saying that we can't understand an elephant by putting it under a microscope. And we can't understand our problems by putting it under a microscope. We've got to zoom out. And when we do that, we zoom out and we see that our problems knit into the bigger problem that is the disconnect between man and God. And the beautiful, beautiful story of the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ is that he comes and he makes it possible for us to connect with God once again. And as we come and connect with God once again, the big problem, the massive problem, the root of all other problems comes and is resolved in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the gospel message. This is the gospel message. And so Jesus didn't come to heal the sick as much as he came to save the sick. Jesus didn't come to take away our problems as much as he came to take away the problem. And if there are problems, and if there are challenges and trials, all of these are left by God in His sovereign will, in His sovereign understanding of what's best for us to draw us back to Him, to draw us to a place of dependence and need on Him and Him alone. And so, what we need to understand is that Jesus very much has the power, like this, to come and remove any problem that exists. But if we want him to come and take away any problem, surely it needs to be the biggest problem of all, the disconnect between us and God. And on the cross, he comes and does that. He comes and does that. But at the same time, we need to understand that he transforms our lives. And sometimes our desires and our problems that we long for are actually gifts from God where he comes and shifts our perspective onto God. And so as I close, I've got a couple of points that I want to run through very quickly Number one, I've got under the heading application. I don't know if this is actually application as much as he has, a f- has some food for thought. 
And so number one, our biggest problem is sin. When we come and we consider the problem of problems, the biggest problem is sin. The disconnect between us and God, where we come and put ourselves first and God second, and by definition, God cannot be second. And as long as that's the case, there's going to be disconnect there. Number one, our biggest problem is sin. Number two, every other problem is evidence of sin that flows out from that place, whether uh, directly or indirectly, the absence of God coming and governing that. That, that, that. that leads us back to a point, to a place where we need to understand that, um, that every other problem is evidence of sin. Number three, God is more interested in your end game. And so you're sitting here and saying, God, why don't you come and solve my problem? Why don't you come and fix this for me? Please, God. And I don't think there's any one person that hasn't prayed that in a moment of despair. God, right here, right now, please come and fix it. And sometimes God doesn't because he's more interested in the long term. He's more interested in the end game. He's more interested in the bigger picture than he is in this momentary space. Number four, some of us know Jesus but don't believe. Like I said earlier, we, we know Jesus, but we don't welcome him. We know Jesus, but we don't accept him. We know Jesus, but we, we don't believe. And part of the believing isn't just believing that, that he can fix our problems. It's believing that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world. Number five, faith is the antidote to our problems. And so our biggest problem is our problem of sin. And so how do we deal with the problem of sin? Is it through works? No. It's not through works, it's through faith. Is it through our ability to come and achieve and strive and get the work done? No, for those of us that are old hands, we know that we're not saved by works. We, we're not justified by works. We're justified by faith alone. Here's the challenge is that, is that a worker doesn't receive his wage because he refuses to work. We do not receive a gift because of pride. And so sometimes we don't receive the gift that God comes and gives us because of the issue of pride. You see, when we come and try and transact this in the, in the context of, of wages, it's not wages. We don't have to work for it. We need to come in faith and we need to accept the gifts that God gives us. And so when we come and we, we talk about the issue of sin and the disconnect between us and God, the, 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 the limiting agent in the context of that is not your ability to work or strive, because it would set precedent where some can do more than others. No, it's, it's pride. And it's always been pride. That our pride is a stumbling block to accepting Christ. And, and so faith is what we need to accept Jesus. But also we need faith in the midst of our problems for them to be resolved or for us to persist and endure through our problems. Under a new heading, our problems persist because, number one, we lack faith. We lack faith. We know Jesus, but we don't actually believe him. Number two, we don't ask for help. And so we've got some skewed perception, some skewed fatalistic perception of prayer, of life, what will be, will be. And so we're like, whatever happens, happens. And so you're not asking, and so you're not seeing results. And as Paul said earlier, do you not know the power of prayer? Do you not know the power of prayer, the engine room of life? You can go and pray. If we don't understand the power and we don't believe the power of prayer, then why, why what we're doing is meaningless. We have to believe that God can come and engage in our situation, in our life, and come and bring change. That God can actually help. And so maybe for some of us, we need to just ask. Number three, we're too familiar with Jesus. 
And so Jesus goes back to Galilee because they're so familiar there with him and it's actually a safe place. And for some of us, we can be too familiar with Jesus. He's our buddy. He's our homeboy. Yeah, Jesus. But actually, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He needs to be esteemed and revered and honored and exalted. You need to understand that all power and majesty, all, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He's not our homeboy. And so we can't be too familiar with Jesus. Yo, what up, Jesus? And, and number four, we feel we are superior and therefore entitled. One of the biggest problems and the biggest challenge in our context, in our flow as a church, as a community, in the charismatic tradition is that we feel superior. We feel better than other churches. We feel like we're getting it more right than other churches are. I sat in a meeting the other day in a training course. We're sitting there and they were, they were pointing out and, and tuning other churches that weren't there. And they were, in essence, mocking them for not having the right way. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying, how can you do this? You, you, how can you assume that you've got the monopoly on how God does stuff? It is arrogant and terrible. And what happens is when we, when we operate in the superior space of like, well, we've got it down. We are the best church around there. You, you may be, but you can't think that. And as soon as you think that, it may be the end point. And, and I'll, you know, you may be, but it's, it's probably unlikely. But what leads from that, that sense of superiority is a sense of entitlement. I deserve this. No, you deserve hell. And in fact, in fact, God would be fully justified in sending you to hell and you'd still be sovereign and supreme. Your, your redemption is a gift from God that he gives to you, not because you deserve it, because he's loving and kind and he's gracious. And, and, so, and so we don't deserve anything but hell, but God comes and gives us the gift of life through Jesus Christ. We, we're not entitled to anything. Number five, we actually need them. We actually need problems in our lives. We actually need problems in our lives, and we see it again and again. Paul quoted it earlier. Consider it a pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. And so we actually need these trials. Number, next heading, and I'll be done. Remember, remember, as I close, remember, God's work, God works with a greater good in mind. He's got a greater agenda, a long game in mind. Number two, God is a father who wants us to take responsibility. God is a father who wants us to take responsibility. The other day we had some friends over and their little boy was walking around and he stepped in some dog poo. And he started freaking out. His, his foot started flicking like this, trying to flick it off. He started screaming and wailing. And, and his mom came, swept him up, took him, and took him to a tap. And with her hands, was rubbing it off in between the toes. I mean, who here would go and touch dog poo? But if it's your kid, you're going to do that. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel and of God, who in our mess, in our putrid state, Jesus comes down and finds us and wants to wash us clean. He wants to come and wash us clean. And it's the father heart of God that calls us to that place. But he's also a father who knows we need to take responsibility. And so if this little boy is 18 and if he's stepping in poo, his mom isn't going to come and pick him up and take him to the tap and wash his foot off. And, you know, you've got to learn not to step in poo. And so sometimes you've got to, you've got to take responsibility for your own issues and your own problems. And God's saying, actually, you need to deal with them. And so maybe some of our problems as we sit here is because you're going around the same mountain again and again and God's saying, you've got to take responsibility, buddy. Number three, God is sovereign. 
Even if relief doesn't come, God remains God. He remains sovereign. Number four, God wants to help today. He wants to help with your problems today, first and foremost. And, and there's relief with regard to the issue of sin, the disconnect between us and God. And, and, and there's relief right here, right now. Honestly, if, you, if that's something that you desire, God will meet you in that right now, I promise you. And for some of you, some of you, you some of your problems... Today, I've got faith that you can stand in prayer and trust God. Call someone around you, someone that you trust. Ask them to pray with you and that it can go like that. And if it doesn't, he can help you still with the peace that you need to endure. And number five, do not forget. Do not forget. And so Paul said, just before he transcended, he said, think of what God has done and where God has seen us through. What we need to do is we're so focused on all my problems and all my issues that we forget about God's faithfulness in the past. And we forget how faithful he has been. And so I was a student here at Stellenbosch. I had this life, I mean, I was catching crocodiles in the Okavango Delta. I was mapping fence lines uh, in, in Malawi. I had this beautiful life planned. I had this job offer and everything was glorious. And I felt God say, stay in Stellenbosch. And so I'm like, okay, I stay in Stellenbosch. And for 10 months, I can't find work. I can't find anything. Eventually, I'm selling dog baskets on the side of the road. And one day, uh, and some of you know this story, one day in 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 desperate need, I'm, I'm, I'm beside myself, and it's the first and only time, honest guys, that I cried. Uh, and, and I leaned over, I was sitting in my car, selling on, on the R44, dog baskets on the side of the road, and I leaned over in the car, and I leant into the, the cushion next to, in, in the passenger seat, and I wept in the car, and I was like, God, what the, what the heck? And I said, if, if I don't sell a dog basket right now, God, if you don't help me right now, I'm not going to have petrol to get home and I'm not going to have food to eat tonight. There's a bigger story to it. I told my dad not to help me and to leave me alone in, a, in the best kind of way of I need to stand on my own two feet. And so I was like, God, help me. I'm weeping. And next thing, out of nowhere, this car stops. This weird man gets out. In 30 seconds, he comes. He says, I want that one. Chucks it in. He says, how much? I say, 120 rand. He throws it to me. He gets in his car. He shoots off. And I'm standing there, still like a tear running down. And I'm like, God is real. God is real. And so, and so I share this with you because in that moment... There was, there was, it's the most practical, most real example of God coming, meeting me in a problem that he can do today. Maybe not, but he can. He is able. But more than that, as I zoom out and I try and comprehend the elephant that was that season in my life, I look back at it with such fondness because I would not have married the person that I married. I would not have been in the church that I'm in and I would not have the privilege of doing what I'm doing if I hadn't endured in that season. And I praise God for that. May God bless you in your journey and in the problems that you have to face.